From field to table and flame to fork, the pursuit of the outdoor connection is ingrained deep within one's spirit. The draw to the flame of a campfire is felt from around the world. Why do we hunt? Pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Here we go with episode 15 of the Campfire Conversations. What's been about seven, eight months we've been rolling this now? Getting close anyway, six anyway. I don't know. Yeah, it was. I guess we started in January. So I guess, yeah, sneaking up on seven months. It's been awesome. We've had some incredible guests on. We've had, uh, God, we, 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 the first one we had was um, Ken, the guy who was attacked by a grizzly in his tent and, We've had Carla, the, uh, the the former vegan activist who became a hunter and a taxidermist. Uh, we we had our good friend Tana on, and now we've got we just finished recording with Maddie Damaske, right? I, I said it right, didn't I? Yeah, I think you did. Yeah, I don't I don't know why that last name so hard to remember how to pronounce, but it, it kind of is. It's 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 because we're Canadian and that that's an American thing. We, yeah, we should, I think we should be. know it though because with that that stereotype where Canadians all say a, so it's be Damask a, right? Sorry, Jan. Yeah, that's sorry, right. Jan. But <laughs> so Maddie is quite the accomplished uh, all round person. Like what a hell of a background she's got. Just interesting, interesting conversation we had. She's uh, an attorney who's specializing or going towards specializing in conservation law. And she's, she's a hunter, but. Yeah. And in, like international conservation yeah. law by the sounds of it, like she's, she's going, it looks like she's going to be putting her efforts towards, you know, parts of the world that, maybe aren't quite as organized as as many jurisdictions in North America and help them, you know, have uh, uh, better systems in place by the sounds of it. So yeah, that's a pretty lofty pursuit. Absolutely it is. It's, but just what she's accomplished already in her life at the age of 27 and what she, she wants to accomplish in the future is it, it looks great for, for, for wildlife management and conservation, as you say, stayed around the world. And I, I really, really look forward to seeing more from her because you know she's going to make some big waves, right? She's just got that passion and you can hear the fire in her voice when you get her talking about uh, some of these things that are close to her heart. Yeah, she's obviously highly passionate about wildlife and wildlife conservation. And yeah, the world needs more people like her. There's no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite happy the weather, well, she she texted me and said she'd be a couple of minutes late signing in due to a, uh, she called it a weather event there. And I, th- I think that means it was chuck and rain and, and thunder and lightning, but it sounded good on our end. So hopefully it sounds good to everybody else. So yep. we, in, in exciting news, we just had uh, our friends at Filter Studios finish the last in our I Hunt series, uh, the, the, the videos that we've been releasing slowly. I think that means we got what, four, three, four more to, to roll out steady over the next month or so. And yeah, it's been, been, been a fun series and filter kind of knocked it out of the park as, as expected. So, yeah. Yeah. They, they did a good job. You know, I think the, uh, for anybody who's listening to this, um, you know, check out our iHunt series thus far. It's basically a series of films just designed to show the diversity of people that hunt and, and, and destroy some of those stereotypes that that some people might have about hunters and uh yeah i i've really enjoyed it i you know i'm kind of sad this series is coming to an end at least for yeah. now but i think it's done its job you know i think we've 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 found some just fascinating individuals to be a part of this series and you know, every single one of them has been great and uh yeah i think i think uh i think it's something we can be proud absolutely of. agree we're coming up on well we probably just crushed through a million views on on our video series and for a, a small nonprofit that uh, we're, we're, we're stretching the dollars that uh, we get and, and spreading that message wide. I know our, uh, the, the, one of the last ones with uh, Dr. Schwancha, she, her, her video has shot up. Was it 12,000 views in the last two weeks? So we're getting damn near a thousand views a day 
on this. So obviously the, yeah. the, the story is resonating with people and yeah, we just, just hope that, uh, that the message is being, uh, being well, heard. What I like about it is, yeah, we've got probably north of a million views now or close to it. And, you know, a lot of hunters don't really know what we're up to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. who's the million people, right? right. I, I think we're really hitting our demographic. We're really, we're really getting these videos in front of the people we want. And and you can tell that too, because of the comments we've, we've had to some of them that have been, uh, uh, you know, posted that, you know, people explicitly state that they're not hunters, but they really mm-hmm. appreciate us putting these videos together. And it's really made them reflect on, on, on things in a positive way. And, yeah, I, th- I think it's been it's been a really positive. Yeah, totally, endeavor. we've had a couple of uh, messages from from vegans and uh, vegetarians that say, "Hey, if I was to eat meat, this is the way I'd want to do it with with hunting." And uh, thanks for not being overly graphic and not throwing it in our faces, and just thanks for telling a story. So, it, it, as as much as there's there's some hunters out there that are confused by what we're putting out there, that that's a good thing because sounds kind of crappy but the, the messaging isn't for the hunting community because no not at all be no. preaching to the choir so to speak right and yeah. we're, we're trying to show the non-hunter what we're all about and with a softer side of messaging and showing the commonalities right the, the grip and grins have a place but it's it's not at one campfire and we we yeah we need to show that side yeah and one campfire is not all just about no. hunting too i mean we're about you know, the, all the things that unite people that have passion for the outdoors, whether it be fishing, hunting, hiking, you know, just photography, it doesn't really matter what people are doing out in the outdoors. We all share that same passion. I mean, I think it was the last podcast with Dr. Corey Lawson, mm-hmm. the, uh, the bat uh, expert. I mean, that, that podcast had nothing to do with hunting, but it, it definitely had a lot to do with wildlife conservation. And uh, this is one of my favorite podcasts is because she's such a fascinating individual and there's such a fascinating, you know, group of animals, but you know, we're, we're all desirous of the same things and that's, that's, you know, conservation, you know, connection with the land. And uh, you know, I think that if we can all get past some of the uh, you know, the superficial differences, I think we'll find that we have a lot more in common with, with, with each other than, than not. Absolutely agree, my friend. So with that, Let's hear Maddie's connection to hunting with episode 15 of the Campfire Conversations. The perception of hunting, you know, has changed. It's our duty now, our responsibility as hunters, to change it back. And we've spent the last few decades trying, you know, espousing that that message, preaching that message about wildlife conservation. You know, it's fallen on deaf ears, all of our attempts. I think what, what we have to do is, is maybe uh, appeal to the emotional side or the visceral side. We have to tell our story. We know what we are. We know how deeply we care about wildlife. It's just the people out there that are, that are you know, voting to get rid of hunting, they don't understand our stories. Sometimes we, we have to translate it to something that they understand. Episode 15 of the Campfire Conversations. I am here with JP and Maddie. How are you doing, Maddie? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So let, let's get this out of the way. Damaski, Damaski, Damask. How do you say it? Uh, it's Maddie Damaski. Perfect. So no more butchering that. I don't have to ask your mom. By the way, hi, Jan. You're absolutely one of my most favorite people in the world. I tell you that all the time. And we're going to get into this conversation about how you're just a wonderful mother a little bit later. So let's get into you, Maddie, before we thoroughly embarrass your mom. So let's, let's talk about you. Let's get a little bit of a background. Tell us who you are, where you are from. Yeah. So uh, like I said, my name's Maddie Damoski. I'm 27 now. I always forget how old I am, but I grew up in Colorado and then, you know, grew up in a hunting family. My, my dad's from the Midwest and my mom's from Wyoming. And so, you know, big hunting family, family. Um, and then, you know, started hunting when I was real, real small. Um, and then 
kind of grew up with that. I went to, did my undergraduate in Montana, the Montana State University. Um, I have a degree in ag business and a degree in economics. And then after that, I moved to Lawrence, Kansas and pursued a law degree um, and actually just finished with that. So now I'm back in Colorado um, after not living here for eight years. So, Wow. <laughs> that's that's impressive. So law degree. So did, have you passed the bar yet? Yep. So I took the bar back in July of shoot 2021. Um, I took the Colorado bar, which is the second hardest bar in the state in the United States to pass. Um, as far as the uniform bar exam goes, there's 36 states that subscribe to that. But uh, I took it in July and actually passed on my first try. Um, I found out in October. And yeah, it was definitely, I mean, everybody's tired of hearing about it, but it was a little tumultuous with COVID and, you know, spending my second half of law school, you know, learning from a computer, not being around my classmates and that kind of stuff, but glad to be done with it. And it's nice to have the JD after my name. <laughs> I, I can well imagine. Well, congratulations there. I, I, I saw what was that movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio a bunch of years ago where he pretends to be the pilot, the doctor, the lawyer. And somebody said there, oh, how, you didn't pass the bar exam. And based on a real, real true story. And he says, yeah, I just, I just studied and challenged it. So is that not likely to happen in Colorado when you say it's one of the hardest to challenge? Um, yeah, I mean, you have to go to law school. First of all, Colorado requires that you go to a accredited law school in order to even take the bar exam. Um, so it's definitely, it's, it's a bit more challenging. That's for sure. I think the hardest thing is so Colorado is part of the UBE states. And so that's the uniform bar exam. So there's 36 states that offer the exact same exam at the exact same time. Um, you just have to have a different score to pass. And uh, Colorado just so happens to have a higher number. I think probably because a lot of people are moving to Colorado because it's, you know, we're becoming mini, mini California over here. But um, yeah, it's definitely tougher. And I have absolutely no idea what movie you're talking about. Um, people always ask me if I watch movies and I always say the only time I watch movies is on airplanes. I hardly ever watch movies. So if you remember the name of it, I'll add it to my watch on an airplane list. It's, it's called catch me if you can, and it's gotta be 15, 20 years old. And it'd be actually kind of funny if you watch it on an airplane because he pretends to be a pilot. It's based on the story of a guy named Frank Abagnale who is super well known now he actually he, he he cut his teeth forging checks and pretending to be like i said a doctor a pilot and just just about everything under the sun and now he's actually employed by i believe it's the fbi in the uh the fraud department telling them how people are defrauding them and how to stop them he cut a plea bargain did minimal time in jail or something to in exchange for his knowledge. So it's actually a pretty cool, pretty, pretty cool movie. Catch me if you Catch can. Catch me if you can. I'll have to remember that. I'll write it down later. I'll oh, yeah. It's my yeah, list. <laughs> it's great. It's, it's really, really well done. So, so, so I was going to ask you, so, buddy, what, what made you ahead, choose Jimmy. law? You could have gone in different directions. What was appealing to you about law? Um, I guess what, I, I, this might sound like super like gushy and stuff, right? But, I always was like, I'm not to brag on myself. I'm an intelligent, I'm very intelligent human. And so I've always understood things a little bit differently. And so learning was always really easy for me. And um, I was always told like, Hey, like you can use your voice and all that kind of stuff. And then when I really started to get passionate about like hunting and conservation, I was like, word, how can I use my brains and like what I have going for me to be able to enable other people to do this. And so then I was like, okay, so I just kept started like spitballing ideas. And the idea of law school came to me, shoot, I was in college in my undergrad. So like, it wasn't one of those lifelong dreams of becoming an attorney. You know, some people dream about it since they were a baby, but for me, it was probably my sophomore, junior year of um, school at MSU. And I was like, wow, that could be really cool. And then I started to talk to more and more people about it. And it just seemed like one of those things that I was like, wow, I can help 
support what I'm passionate about so other people can do what I've done. And I can do that through the law. And then I ended up in law school and I like fell in love. Like law school is one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was one of those things where I, I mean, I love being challenged. Like that's why I love sheep hunting is because I love being challenged. And so it was one of those things, right. Where it was like, okay, I love this challenge. And then I started doing some, my internships and I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. You know, you kind of, one day you kind of get that light bulb that's like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Like law makes sense. And um, yeah, so I mean, kind of in a weird roundabout way, it was like wanting others to have what I've had and being able to use the gifts that I've been given. You know, I'm not like my sister who's like a phenomenal salesperson. Like she could sell ice to an Eskimo. Like I'd be (laughs) giving it away. Like I can't sell worth crap, you know? So Long story short, it was, yeah, it was kind of a later, I don't want to say later in life, but later in school decision um, to go to law school. And so far I haven't regretted it. Fair enough. So obviously hunting is a big passion of yours. With your classmates in law, like, did you talk about hunting? Like how many of your classmates, you know, hunted or was that, was that part of the culture at all of the school you went to? Um, it wasn't, you know, and it was funny my first year there, I really didn't talk about it much. Um, I didn't have many people over to my house because I was like, okay, how are people going to take this? Because generally law school is a little bit more of a liberal environment. Um, even though I was in the Midwest, I was kind of like, oh, I'm moving to the Midwest. It's going to be great. Um, people are going to be super supportive of this. And I was pretty trepidatious about telling people about it. But then once I start like started talking to people about it, they were like, that's, that's really cool. You know, like the fact that you were in like, right when I went back for my second year, I just went to Russia that summer. And so to be able to talk to people about that, and it wasn't always about the hunt necessarily, but you know, the food and the culture and all that kind of stuff, which was what piqued people's interests more. Um, I never ran into anybody that was like really like staunch anti hunting or anything like that. Um, I think part of that too is like, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who just like puts it out there. Like I want to have like a healthy dialogue about it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, law school is definitely an interesting environment to be a hunter and an attorney. You know, I think probably the only places you're going to really find other hunters is like in law schools, like Texas, right that makes sense so it so it's kind of you kind of had that stereotype type thing there where it's not not what you expect a a young female in law school is not what they would expect as a hunter then i'm guessing oh absolutely not i mean and the thing is too like i mean you guys have both met my mom like she always taught us you put yourself together when you leave the house like you don't go rolling out in your sweatpants and um, so I always put myself together for school. Right. And I'm, I'm not one of those people. I don't have like a camouflage phone case or, you know, I mean, I have like my wild sheep logo on my water bottles and stuff, but I definitely don't think I fit into that like stereotype of a hunter. Um, and even like, you know, in the Midwest, they hunt deer and turkeys and that kind of stuff. So I don't even think I really fit into that stereotype. Um, yeah, it's 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 definitely not something that that you expect, right? Uh, when when you think of a hunter, you, you see it in the media all the time, right? It's uh, the 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 guy with the beard and the jacked up truck and the camouflage and the the blue jeans and the big wad of tobacco, right? And it's 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 totally why we created one campfire is to show that there's there's people like yourself that are great ambassadors for hunting and don't necessarily fit that stereotype that is thrown in our face when, when uh, we're, we're presented in, in, in movies or in media or whatever, right. It's, it, it's pretty cool that you've got such a, a, a fascinating backstory and how you're smashing those stereotypes. And it's, it's, as I said, it's awesome. And I, I love hearing about that. So when, when do you, like, well, after, now that you've passed the bar, what's the next step for that? 
like dude is there is like a job application process or do you have any directions you want to go yeah so i found out i passed in october colorado takes a little bit longer than other states just because we have quite a few applicants and like i said it was one of the harder bars to pass and um so they're a little bit more rigorous with their um going through those tests and so I actually ended up taking the fall off and just kind of bopped around with my dad and hunted and then, you know, went to hunting conventions this spring, kind of with a different eye of like, okay, you know, some of these could be my colleagues, like I could represent these people one day, um, which was actually like a really interesting way to see the hunting conventions, right? Um, so I've never been to them in that light. And so then this spring, I really started looking for a job that kind of fit what I wanted to do with my life of, you know, conservation, but conservation through sustainable utilization and hunting and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of hit a dead end with a lot of Colorado firms because a lot of Colorado firms are very anti-hunting to say the least, you know, and that's really, that's tough. I could never work for a firm that is really against what my heart and soul is. Like, I get it. That's great that you want to save public lands, but I also can't support you, you know, reintroducing wolves into the state of Colorado without enough backing from um, Colorado Game and Fish. And so I ended up just kind of putting it out there to a lot of my friends that I, and colleagues that I was interested in getting into this space. And um, currently, my dad likes to consider it under unemployed because I'm kind of doing this pro bono, but I'm actually working a little bit with... Uh, Jack Atchison and Kurt Alt from Wild Sheep Foundation um, on some issues they're having in Tajikistan. And, you know, even just working on that has really like stoked my fire of like, heck yeah, this is what I've meant to do. And yeah, it's super, super interesting stuff. And I think I wish more people could understand the dynamics of law and hunting and public lands and conservation. And so, so weird messed up ball <laughs> so things in other parts of the world like tajikistan are they quite different than north america i imagine they would be like what 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 kind of challenges do those regions of the world face that you know we might not be familiar with um yeah so like for instance with tajikistan i think a big issue we're running into right now is communication but part of it is because of their governmental structure and how they implement their laws and legislation, um, they really make it more difficult to communicate with other countries who have a different legal system, who see things in a different light. Um, you know, because like just the way that their government is set up, it might take them a couple weeks to respond because they have to send it to, you know, their superior and then their superior has to send it to their superior to make sure that they're not going to put them in a bad light. And so the biggest thing with Central Asia is just they don't have a great model of conservation. And so, you know, while Chief Foundation's really been pushing for that, and then some of the other like major organizations are really trying to get behind like, how can we introduce the North American model of conservation to these Central Asian countries? Um, which I think is really like a fascinating concept because they, they need that. Right. So, because I mean, you see so much more poaching over there and I mean, I understand everybody's got to eat, but they also don't understand that if they harbor these populations, it could really benefit them financially, which could then, you know, lead to more agriculture, more livestock, better infrastructure. So the, you know, Western hunting, like Western hunters going to these regions, do you see that as overall fairly beneficial then as far as bringing value to the wildlife in those regions? Yeah. So it's, you definitely notice that. So, I mean, kind of the Western ideology and like you guys probably know this, but um, is really based off of this idea of sustainable utilization that if you take one out of the herd, it's really going to benefit the herd in the long run. And, um, you know, population growth, but then also you have the financial side of that, right? Where people are paying money to go hunt these animals and that money is going towards, you know, conservation programs and tags and plugging and all of that kind of stuff. And so if you see that rep like repeated in some of these Central Asian countries, 
you're starting to see some of those benefits. I mean, I, everybody thinks, I don't know how many people think about it, but like the story of the Bukhar and Markhor in Tajikistan is the epitome of introducing this like Western model of like hunting and sustainable utilization into the country of Tajikistan and watching it take a population from less than a thousand to well over several thousand to where it's one of the more successful Markhor populations in the world. Um, you know, so just watching that is just so, absolutely. So how did that work? Like what, what happened there? Um, so well, I, I always say long story short, cause I have a tendency, like I'll get really passionate about something and then I'll just keep talking about it. And then I'm like, Oh, I've lost somebody's interest. So I apologize if I do that. But Basically, Tajikistan um, has Bukharan markhor. It's one of the four major species of markhor. There's a couple others that are less known and on the verge of extinction. That is not, that's not what we're talking about. But so the Bukharan markhor was um, basically a, a couple of conservation organizations went to Tajikistan and said, hey, we want to conserve these populations. Like, what can we do? Um and they found out that a lot of the locals who raise goats and sheep for um, meat and wool were grazing in these markhor areas. And they found that the markhor were not beneficial. They couldn't be hunted by them personally because it was illegal. And so what benefit was it serving to leave these animals that were eating food that could probably serve two or three of their goats? And so they poached them down till the populations were non-existent essentially and so then when these conservation organizations came in it was like okay you know if if a hunter is willing to pay for these we might be able to develop this program to where you guys get paid and we can you know kind of create this program where this money from a markor is just like supporting your village and your community and so then once they started to see that hey there's some value in these things they stop poaching them. Well, then when they stop poaching them, you know, then yeah, they still need to work on the grazing. I mean, you don't, there's not nearly as many disease issues with like the markhor, which um, is super fascinating. I don't know anything about biology. I'm not going to claim that I do, but I think it'd be a fascinating research pro project to kind of figure that out. But um, once they kind of realize that, Hey, we can get a crap ton of money for a hunter to come in and shoot one of these markhor and that money is going to go towards our conservation programs and our infrastructure programs and all that kind of stuff. They really saw the population start to thrive. You know, um, they were listed as an endangered species in appendix one animal. And so you legally couldn't import one in the United States. Um, and so then once this program got going, um, actually my dad ended up suing us fish and wildlife to get his imported because the program was so like phenomenal and it's literally like the pinnacle of conservation and, you know, us fish and wildlife was like, yeah, I mean, there's no reason for us not to let them in because you guys have the surveys, you have the money going into it. And, uh, I was actually talking to Jack Ashenson today. There's a small village kind of off the one road that kind of leads down a couple of the big valleys. One of them just so happened to be uh, near where I was hunting for my markhor. And he said, they're actually building a hotel there with the money from the markhor project. And they said it could employ up to 200 people. And that's phenomenal. You know, some of those people over there, they, they make nothing like you would never be able to survive on what they make over there in the United States, Canada, Europe, Mexico, like, but they do. And so to be able to bring this hotel in, it's more for tourism and that kind of stuff, less for the markhor hunters, but to be able to bring in this huge piece of infrastructure is insane for that, that population, especially those local villages. But yeah, to just watch them because of these limited, I think they have the first few years, they only had three or four of the markhor tags. Um, this year, I want to say they had, maybe five, um, which still, I mean, that's not a lot. And, you know, it was definitely tough, like during those COVID times, you know, you couldn't have hunters come over there. And so some of those villages were a little, a little worried when they weren't getting 
that money because it's so important. You know, they have these big projects planned and sorry. I'm, oh. I'm like talking guys off about no, that's, that's, that's awesome. I, I love hearing about success stories like that because it shows that there's, there, there's more, again, there's more to face value to hunting than, than meets the eye. It's far too often we're portrayed as bloodthirsty killers. When you look at the big picture of bringing an animal population back to not only viable, but thriving things happen. Like you just described, like a whole a whole hotel is coming in as a, as a byproduct, not just of hunting, but because of the value placed on wildlife. So there, there's more, like I said, there's more than meets the eye. There, a ton of money from hunting goes into the economy, right? In that local economy, you see it in over there. You, you see it here in North America, in a lot of these little small areas, these small towns, uh, you see it in Africa, it, the local employment is is one thing you you mentioned there, and I, I know that uh, a lot of these villages, as, as you said, rely on not only the the money coming in, but also the food that's provided by these hunters as well. So you you've obviously been there and uh, had had an opportunity to take part in some of these hunts. So. What, what kind of uh, relationship did you see with the, the guides and the, the villagers when, when you were there? Did, did, uh, were they welcoming and, and how did that work? Um, I would say generally, I mean, if we're speaking on Central Asia, I would say that they're generally very welcoming. Um, they're very welcoming of hunters because of the, because it's obviously supporting this program. Um, pretty welcoming of Americans. I would say, I don't want to say I got a cold shoulder as a woman because I, I, I genuinely didn't feel that when I was in Tajikistan, you know, some other countries I've definitely felt that a little bit, but right. in Tajikistan though, it was, they were, they were very welcoming. Um, they a little bit treated me like China. Like I was like this fragile thing and I'm like, <laughs> word, I'm not like, I can hike. I'm good. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to fluff my pillow, you know, but, um, I would say generally like they were very welcoming and like you could tell like they knew like when you pulled into the village, like the villagers knew which truck was going to be an outfitter's truck or uh -huh. a guide's truck and that kind of stuff because they, like, they would come and like stand on the streets and like stare into the car and whatever. And I mean, it doesn't make you, I mean, it doesn't make you uncomfortable because you know, they're not going to do anything. Right. Cause like in some countries you're like, Oh, that's a little nerve wracking, but generally they're and they're so like such warm people like every time I was in camp they would be like do you want some tea do you want a cookie do you want some snacks and like very much like my mom I have a sweet tooth and I'm like yes I do want a cookie thank you <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's awesome so like no, no matter the culture you're you're made to feel welcome and d d hunting is is something that you don't even have to to share the language to share the experience and to, to share th that communication without saying a word. Right. So I, I think that's pretty awesome. I haven't had a chance to get overseas or go abroad for, for hunts yet, but that's, it's something that's definitely on my bucket list because it's, it, it's very, very uh, almost like a brotherhood sisterhood type deal where as, as you said, it's, it's welcoming, right? Uh, you know what, uh, what it's all about without having to say a word. So let's, let's dig a little bit back. Uh, your, your mom mentioned something about meat judging. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? So in high school, I was part of an organization called FFA, which used to stand for future farmers of America no longer wow. stands for that because it doesn't just encompass farmers. And we were required to participate in like a, like an activity. Right. And so I didn't grow up on a farmer ranch. I knew nothing about cows. I knew I didn't, I mean, I didn't know how to weld. I literally in my welding class, the teacher let me turn in somebody else's work because I welded my metal to the table. Like I, I didn't grow up with that background. And so I was like, Oh, you know, I could get into meat judging. Like that can't be that hard. Right. Like what has the most marbling? Is it a good color? Like it was one of those things where I was like, 
oh, I could definitely, I could definitely do this. And so um, there's a couple of my friends, we ended up joining up in this group and twice a week, we would meet up and shamelessly look at pictures of meat on the internet. Like they have like, web, like SFA had like websites where it'd show you like four different pictures of meat and you'd have to decide, like you'd have to rank them like one through four. And, you know, it was, it was more like the camaraderie of like being with your buddies and like having fun. I ended up being pretty good at it. Um, because I was able, I, I have a slightly photographic memory. And so I was able to be like, okay, I remember on this website on page seven, that there was this one meat that looks almost identical to the one in this contest. And so that one was ranked fourth, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that benefited me for sure, but Oh God, I can't believe Dan told you about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, trust me. She, she fed me a lot of great info. Like we can just roll right into it with uh, something about learning to smoke meat during COVID. Yeah. So we, um, (laughs) when COVID started, I was in school and um, school shut down and my parents were very much like, Hey, just come stay with us. Like you don't need to be living by yourself with COVID. I was like, okay, cool. So I ended up moving back to Colorado for COVID and um, my dad's buddy kept talking his ear off about getting a Traeger. And my dad's like, I don't need a Traeger. Like I have my grill, I can grow my steaks, I can grow my burgers. And finally I was like, dad, we should get one, we should get one. And I was like, I'll use it all the time. Like I'll teach you how to use it. And then it turned into one of those things where he'd be like, hey, Maddie, you know what sounds really good? Like we should have some ribs. Like, can you figure out how to do that? And for me, it was like so much fun, right? Like you're not really leaving the house and you have like the spice pantry and you know, we have our beef and stuff. And so I was able to like figure out recipes and do that. And it turned into something that like I was really stoked about. And now people will be like, Hey Maddie, can you like smoke us some pork, like a pork butt for this so we can have pulled pork for whatever holiday or, you know, tri tip is kind of my special tri tip and uh, pulled pork are my specialties. So it's kind of my go-to. And deer tenderloins. We, we, uh, my dad went to Alaska and shot a couple of black tails with some buddies. And so we ended up smoking just a bunch of like deer tenderloin steaks on the smoker and everybody was just gaga over them because they were so good. But yeah, so the Traeger has been definitely very fun. It's like fun to learn the different woods and the different, um, temperatures and recipes and, rubs and what tastes good with this meat and what tastes good with that meat and oh and modifying recipes yeah it's it's been really fun to learn that and you know pull in that high school education of meat judging when i go to the future (laughs) and being like oh that is a good steak oh yeah they just go hand in hand when she told me about the meat judging thing and then you're a, a affinity for smoking meat i'm like we could put those two things together and probably have a great conversation about it and that's also one of the cool things about hunting as well it's one of the best things we can do to bring somebody into the in in, into the the space that doesn't really understand it uh or know where to start is to to cook them up something on a a smoker uh, something that's familiar right like you you grill up a barbecued uh, burger or something and put it in front of them, chances are they're going to have a great experience, especially if it's somebody like yourself who knows how to deal with a Traeger. That's something I haven't, I, I don't even have yet as a Traeger. I've only just got my first smoker. So I'm, I'm learning it. So what, what's your favorite recipe? Do you have anything you can share? Oh goodness. I mean, I really do. I mean, the smoked deer tenderloins are up there. Um, and I'm one of those people, I have an affinity for the taste of like very clean venison. Like I don't need a bunch of seasoning on it. Um, so depending on the size of it, you know, you can rub it down with some, uh, I use extra virgin olive oil from a special region in Greece. Oh. We have an oil place in Colorado and it just has a little bit of a nuttier flavor. Um, And so then with some salt and pepper, and then I put that on the Traeger for at 225. Um, Our Traeger uses, you can use super smoke under 250. So I put it at 225, depending on the size of the tenderloin and the temperature you're going for, it's about 
60 minutes um, to get it up to like a medium rare. Um, so I would, I definitely, that's my favorite, like as far as wild game goes, but uh, for meats, I really love to do tri-tip. That was the first thing I learned to do. And um, you can either get like a pre-marinated one, which is super handy for people who are just getting into it and like, don't really understand um, how to marinate and rub and all of that kind of stuff. But there is one that is a pre-made one. It has a hatch green chili sauce. Does it have oh, hatch green chilies in camp? I haven't heard of them. <laughs> that sounds good. So it's like, it's like a green chili that's specially roasted in uh, Hatch, New Mexico. And so they just oh. basically rub down and marinate a tri-tip in that. And then, um, yeah, you put it on the Traeger. That one at 250 for about 90 minutes to get it to medium rare. And then you put it on there for 90 minutes, you pull it off, turn the Traeger all the way up to high, and then um, reverse sear it. So you sear those juices inside, and then it kind of creates a nice little crisp on the outside. So oh, that's that's a, I'm going to be having a snack after we're done recording this. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get your mom to send me up some of those chilies. That sounds amazing. I'm, I'm a chili nut. I've probably got like, by well, last count, my wife said I had 53 different hot sauces from just one company 53 53 oh i i love i love hot sauces like, okay are you one of those people who like wants it as hot as possible or are you like a, a flavor person i'm a flavor guy i like i like good heat but not if it's at the expense of flavor like some of the some of these ones where it's just like oh hey i can't feel my face for three days afterwards that was great no it's i can i can deal with it i just it's not my thing jp and i keep threatening each other to do uh one of those uh one chip challenge type things so <laughs> i saw one the other day that was with ch like a chocolate bar that had oh, yeah. the spice on it you could try that but you could like sneak it into each other's like suitcases and be like oh look i found this chocolate bar you want some yeah. I, oh, this is good. This is I know good this is evil, but I've always thought about putting a one of those packy like one chip challenge chips just in a bowl of regular tortilla chips or nachos or whatever. Just at a gathering. And just sort <laughs> oh, of keep an eye on a few grabs and take the bite. That would actually be that'd awesome. be great. Like it'd be evil, but awesome. That'd be it'd be an awesome but but see see how many people there would be into it if you said there's two in here. Yeah, that's right. Keep eating. If they all look pretty much the same. And here's a fifty here's a fifty dollar bill in the middle of the of the table. If you can eat it and nobody notices. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you'd be keeping your fifty. Right. <laughs> I, would, I would fail. I'd just be like, I'm done with the chips. Like have you ever seen that video of Shaquille O'Neal where he's at the, like the sports desk and somebody gives him the, the one chip challenge and he says, Oh, I can do it. I'll bet you 20 bucks. I can do it and not make a face. And he takes a bite and he starts chewing on it and he goes, this is nothing to me. And then about three seconds later he goes, ah, <laughs> and then he starts gagging and coughing and he goes, Oh, God was coughing. I was coughing. And he's looking for the water. It's an absolute riot. <laughs> so, Anyway, see total tangent there, and that's what happens on these things. And it's absolutely great. We get talking and it's like a campfire conversation, and we just we kind of flow with yeah, it. So nobody's gonna eat chips with you at any of the shows. They're gonna be like, oh, those guys, they're the chip guys. Don't <laughs> those are the chip guys. Those are the chip guys. That's fine. Yeah, More that's for right. us, right, JP? <laughs> so I, I got a question. Get back to hunting. You know, I was thinking about your international hunting experiences. Um, you've you've hunted quite a bit. Um, in different countries around the world? Yeah. So I, uh, man, yeah, all over the world, uh, Asia, Europe, Africa, um, Canada. Okay. So, well, my, my second question then is of all the places you've hunted, where's your favorite place to hunt? Oh goodness. Okay. So I always end up splitting up this question and everybody tells me it's cheating, but I don't really care. So uh, as far as truly international, not North America, I love Mongolia. Um, I've gone on two trips there, 30 days each. So I've spent about 60 days in Mongolia. And I just am absolutely head over heels in love with the culture and the people and the country. A lot of Mongolia reminds me of like Eastern Montana, where it's like those big rolling hills. Um or like Southern Alberta for you Canadians. But um, 
I, I truly like, I love it. And like their culture and their society is just so fascinating. Their traditions are like, some of them are absolutely revolting, but they're so cool that it's like ingrained in them, right? Like you can tell it's something that's been part of their lives and their family for like years. Um, and so that's really cool. And like the sheep are absolutely incredible, right? I mean, high altar golly is arguably the largest ram in the world. And they're just, when you watch them, you're like, how in the heck do you carry those horns on your head? Like, so fascinating. But um, between the culture and the sheep, Mongolia, Bart, hands down my favorite place to visit internationally. Um, as far as North America goes, I have a thing for the Yukon. Um, I think it's because it's pushed me the hardest as far as um, my North American hunts have gone. I've gone two trips unsuccessfully, two 14-day trips unsuccessfully up there. I've spent countless days in a tent, um, both for white sheep and stone sheep. And, you know, I I just, I love it up there. You know, I, I should say Northwest Territories probably too. My dog's named after the Mackenzie Mountains. Because um, that's where I went on my first sheep hunt ever. What, what, yeah, my first sheep hunt ever. Um, I didn't have a tag in my pocket, but was in the Mackenzie Mountains. So yeah, I would argue either the Yukon or uh, Mongolia for sure. So that's, that's a great segue. So what happened when you were 12? Oh, I was like, what did happen when I was 12? Um, so yeah, so when I was 12, I drew my first uh, sheep tag, which is a pretty, I guess I should say when I was 12, I started hunting when I was 13. I technically drew my first sheep tag. Um, I, yeah, my dad kind of introduced us to big game hunting when I was real small. I mean, shoot, I went on my first hunt when I was 18 months old. I was strapped in a backpack on my dad's back and he shot a mule deer doe. And he said he still to this day vividly remembers me kicking his butt. He's all excited. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so when I was 12, I started big game hunting, but then when I was 13, I drew a John Day tag in Oregon for a California bighorn. Um, Oregon doesn't have a point system. It's completely random. And so I, I still remember I got that postcard in the mail and I thought it was a, I thought it was a typo, right? Like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen them, but it's like a postcard and it shows like all the things you've applied for. And it goes like bighorn sheep, unsuccessful elk, unsuccessful, um, mountain goat unsuccessful but there's like this weird code after california bighorns and i remember i was like there's no way and we remember i I think we called and they're like oh yeah you drew this tag and i remember just sobbing uncontrollably because i was like what in the heck like there's no way that i drew this tag and um right before that hunt we actually went up to the northwest territories and my dad got his first sheep ever um, with Arctic Red. Um, and I went along, I wasn't old enough to hunt myself, but I still wanted to go. And then, yeah, I got that ram on the John Day. And I still to this day, he's like, one of my favorite rams, I'll just go sit in the trophy room and just stare at him because it's, he's 14 years old. It's the oldest ram ever shot in the unit. And they think he's probably part of the like original lamb crop of the transplants there. And you know, the things he saw, I just, and his horns and the character. And I remember vividly telling my dad, like, I want an old broomed off ram. Mind you, I didn't know much about sheep then. And so I was just like, but that's what I wanted. Cause in the photos, that's what I was like drawn to. It's still what I'm drawn to. Like, I love character. That's, I love it. And so I remember seeing that ram and just staring at it. You know, one of my favorite photos, um, is a photo of my dad and I just sitting there and we're just hugging and staring at this ram, you know, and that was back before, you know, we got really into sheep hunting and traveling the world and all that kind of stuff. And before Sitka gear was like the vibe and all that fun jazz. And so, yeah, it was a, that was one of the most special hunts I've ever been on because it's, I mean, it was the first, but it was also like this moment with my dad, which was just like, just insane, right? Like, I, I mean, he's my best friend. And so, like, any time with him is great. But that particular moment was... Well, that's fantastic. Really- oh, I, I, I can only imagine. 14 years old, 
getting a 14 year old Ram that that's a hell of a way to start, uh, uh getting, getting into hunting and especially having the memories there with your dad and uh, someone who himself is so passionate about, uh, wild game and the preservation of it as well. Right. And it's, I, I was doing a little bit of digging and I saw that article that you wrote it said when I was 12, I'm like, Oh, wow. Read it. And so you ended up getting all four of the, the FNAWs, right? The four North American sheep. Yeah. So, um, I, that was my first one. And then my second Ram would have been that following summer. Um, I got a desert sheep down in Texas and then later in that summer, I got a doll sheep with Arctic Red up in the Northwest Territories. And then the following year, I finished up with a stone um, in BC wow. um, outside of Toad River. Well, you didn't waste any wow. time. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's actually funny. Like a lot of people always ask like how we got into sheep hunting, right? My dad had always had this idea that he wanted to do the North American 29 because he wanted to travel yeah. North America and see these places and hunt these animals and the second he went sheep hunting he's like oh shit like i'm oh sorry i cussed you're good okay i was like oh no um but he got hooked on sheep hunting right and so then it was one of those things where once we both did it we were like wow this is this is rad like being up in the mountains and really like having to physically exert yourself is insane and i mean i'm so unbelievably blessed that he helped me get to that point. I mean, he did make a pinky promise. So like, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you have kids, but like pinky promises are a big freaking deal in our household. Like yep. if you make it break a pinky promise, you might as well just like give them your left hand. Right. Like, <laughs> yep. and he had pinky promised me that if I ever drew a bighorn tag, he'd help me with the other three. And so when I drew a bighorn tag, he had to fulfill his pinky promise and help me with the other three. <laughs> that, that's a great pinky promise to have jeez ever, so, uh, so what was, go ahead oh, i was gonna say if you ever want to uh get jan to do something yeah ask her to do a pinky promise she uh jumped out of an airplane over a pinky promise and she <laughs> jumping over a pinky promise i am gonna use that <laughs> to my advantage sorry jan but now i've got that little <laughs> thing in my back pocket so <laughs> So why the draw to sheep? What what was it about sheep that said, hey, this is my my bug? I I honestly think it is the fact that they, first of all, live in the most incredible places, right? Like I've always been drawn to the mountains from um a small age, like a real young age. Like I remember my parents taking us to Yellowstone and Estes and all that kind of stuff. And so I always was drawn to the mountains and then to add this physical exertion side, right. Of sheep hunting where my first sheep hunt, I was, I was backpacking, right. Like I remember I was real small and they put a lot of weight in my backpack and I was like, okay, like I've got this. And it was the fact that you were like pushing yourself. It wasn't like you could just go jump in a truck and drive down the road and, you know, walk five minutes and have a sheep. Like it was, you know, days and days of hiking or, you know, physical and mental exhaustion. And I still, to this day, like people think it's so funny. And if you ever see a video of me on top of a mountain, most likely I'm dying laughing and people think it's hilarious because I always laugh. I'm like, as a human society, we've created bikes, we've domesticated horses, we've created cars, helicopters, airplanes, but yet here are our silly butts hiking up a mountain on our legs, our own two legs to go hunt a sheep, right? And so I always think it, I'd laugh at myself every time. But I, it was just that thing of like physically breaking myself and mentally breaking myself each time was like a good punishment. And it also gave me an extra level of respect for the animal. Like I always say a prayer after um, I've walked up to an animal and thanking God for yep allowing me to take that animal. So it's even just to me, that extra level of appreciation that this animal has thrived in these harsh environments, especially like, you know, you get into rams in Mexico who literally smash cactus with their heads. Like 
they're they live in these insane environments and so to physically exert yourself just makes it that much more worthwhile for me and i mean i'll never not love a mountain like i i've never met a mountain i don't like mm-hmm. yeah so it's, it's about challenging yourself the environment and just the the deeper you're in the mountains and the higher you're up the more respect and appreciation and closeness you have to the the animal you're pursuing, right? It's it's never about pulling that trigger. It's about bringing yourself to their level, right? And 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 finding what drives you deep inside, right? And some some of the 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 biggest reflections you can ever have is when you're sitting alone on the side of a hill under a tree on a rock with the spotting scope up or the binoculars up and just listening and looking right it's 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 a deep connection that you have to 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 feel and experience before you can even begin to describe it and even when we try to describe it like right here you can't really do it because each one of us has a different sort of perception of why we do it but it all ends up being the same result it's about us it's about the environment and it's about the animal so holy we are we're damn near 50 minutes into this conversation. This has been amazing. So, so let's, let's kind of start to roll, roll it up here. So being, being a young woman, we talked about a little bit of the, almost the, the, the porcelain doll treatment that you, you got in some areas. So what, what outside of that, what kind of barriers have you, you faced coming into hunting and, uh, how did you deal with them? Yeah. I mean, I think the the biggest barrier probably for myself, like coming into this was not really having the like background in it. Right. So like my mom is a hunter, but she's never been like really into hunting. And so, and I didn't really know another woman who was doing it. And so it was difficult as a woman trying to find a mentor of like, hey, here's some tips and tricks I have for you and like gear ideas. And it was really trying to learn that on my own and figuring out, okay, these pants fit better than these pants and this rain jacket's better than this rain jacket. And, you know, trying to figure out, you know, most gear lists are oriented towards men. And so trying to figure out how to adapt that to a woman, um, I would say it was like the first big hurdle in kind of coming into this space, but then also learning like you don't have to, and I will be the first to admit when I was younger, I was very much like, I am woman, hear me roar. I'm going to beat my chest. I'm going to be one of the dudes. Like I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm here. And some men are fine with that. Other men are not. And so I've learned that I can do it and I don't need to prove to you that I can do it. And I'm going to have enough confidence going into this. And I'm confident in my gear. I'm confident with my gun. I'm confident with my shooting abilities. I'm confident with my hiking abilities, all of my mental capabilities. Right. And so like learning that sometimes it's not all about like, I am woman, hear my roar, hear me roar, beat my chest. Like I'm a man. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. Like, simple as that right and so learning that was also a big hurdle for me kind of going into the hunting space and then I know that both of those things have been like huge drivers for me in like helping support other women you know I have it's funny like I have uh, I don't know about you guys but like I keep lots of notes on my phone and so if somebody asks me like hey what are your top five tricks and tips for sheep hunting as a woman like I have a note for that like I have a gear list like up and ready to go with my size, why I like something, what brand it is. You know, I very rarely wear like true hunting gear. I wear a lot of mountaineering gear just because it fits me better. Right. And uh, I now am like, I want to be able to be that mentor for people because I didn't have that mentor. Right. Like I had my dad, but my dad can't tell you, Oh yeah, these women's pants fit better than these. Like (laughs) he's six foot six. He's a giant. He doesn't fit in women's pants. Mm -hmm. Like, um, But I would say those are, I mean, trying to learn how to be feminine in a masculine space has been um, a difficulty. And like, I actually, there's a post on my Instagram account about it, but 
I always paint my fingernails. Um, and before each and every hunt, right? Like I'm one of those people that I will dress like the dudes. My hair will be in a braid or a ponytail. And like, I mean, I'm a redhead, fair skin. So I don't my eyebrows and eyelashes are bleach blonde. You can't see them. And so I don't exactly look feminine on the mountain, but my reminder is always having my nails done and they're always a ridiculous color. And to me, that's my reminder of being feminine. Right. And so it's definitely one of those things that I think each person has a different thing. You know, I have friends who have to wear makeup and I have friends who like to have their eyelashes. Like that's great. Like whatever you need. But I think learning how to be feminine in a traditionally masculine space was probably the biggest obstacle I've faced in doing what I do. Because I, I mean, I don't, I mean, I travel the world doing this, right? Like I've been to countries where women are second class citizens and reminding yourself that you're, you can be there is a hurdle in and of itself. It's something that you battle even to this day. I mean, shoot, I've been internationally sheep hunting since I was 16. So for 11 years and there's, I still battle with that. Wow. Like absolutely crushed that answer. <laughs> couldn't have couldn't have phrased that any better uh, it's absolutely love it and yeah it was from the heart and that's that's what we need and that's what we want right so as as we as, as we start to wrap this up here's one that might be tough to articulate i know it would be for me and I know it would be for for JP and just about anybody who's actually been on the mountaintop or on the side of a hill or waded the creeks or sat in sat in a truck and just cruised a logging road. If I was to ask you, what does hunting mean to you? What would you say? Oh dang! See, tough one. I guess, I mean, hunting, is, it, it, I mean, it fuels my fire, but like, what, what does it mean to me? It's, it's one of those things, right, where I don't think that it can be properly defined. I don't think it's that just that moment of the shot. It's the compilation of everything before that. It's the training, it's the gear, it's the talking to people, it's booking the hunt and sending the deposit and the flight and all of that kind of stuff. But from a truly like deep in the heart thing. I mean, it's truly what fuels my fire. It's what gets me stoked to get out of bed every morning. It's what's fueling this career in conservation law. It's, I want to, I want everybody to be able to experience what I've experienced, right? Like, I don't care if that's, I, I don't care if you have to go sheep hunting. Like, I want you to, have those same experiences right and so it's so hard to articulate because it's like just sitting here is like giving me all the warm and fuzzies right of like thinking about what hunting has brought to my life as far as friends and family and mental and emotional and physical health and you know my like my future career and all of that kind of stuff so I don't know that anybody can sum it up in just a few words it's I think it's this culmination of so many different things for so many different people. And I would say like, for me, I, I guess like the best way I can like sum it up is like, it's, it's what fuels my fire, right? Like it's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's what pushes me to be the best version of myself, like physically training for a hunt and mentally preparing for a hunt as well as pushing me as with my career and all of that kind of stuff. And I guess anybody who's like interested in it, it's like, it could, it could stoke so many people's fires for so many different reasons. Right. Like mm -hmm. whether that's organic meat, I mean, that's a huge reason for one of my closest friends. Like he wants to feed his family good organic meat. And that's why he's, that's why he's a hunter is purely because of that. It's not the killing. It's not the horns. It's not the adventure. It's providing good organic meat to his family. You know, I, I don't, Man, that is a tough question to end on. My goodness. I feel like I'm like flustered. I'm like, wow, what is Well, this? I think you answered that very well. <laughs>
Oh, absolutely. It, it, it wasn't meant to be an easy question, right? And it, it, the minute somebody can answer that in three words, four words off the top of their head, I, I would challenge them to dig deeper and really look beyond that face value of, of what, what hunting means, right? Is it, it, hunting is, it, it's not something we do. It's something we are. It's something we need to pass down. It's something that's been, even even if you didn't grow up hunting, it's still something that's been passed down for, for generations in our bloodline. It's, it's who human beings are when we go back our ancestry, right? As soon as we started to walk upright, hunter-gatherers started to evolve. So it's, it's something that's ingrained in our DNA. And I, I loved the fact that somebody as intelligent and well-spoken as yourself stumbled there. You had to think about it because that shows it, it's deep within. And I absolutely think that's a, a, a perfect way to, to end this. So JP, do you have anything else for, for Maddie? No, I think that's, that's great. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me on. And, you know, I hope I didn't mention my mom too much, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can never mention that lady enough. She's absolutely wonderful. So, all right. Thanks, Maddie. You have a great night and we will definitely be in touch. Sounds good. You guys enjoy your evening as well. <laughs>